Good morning. I forgot to mention the first service, but now is the time for all preschool and children. Uh, if you would desire to do some age-appropriate curriculum, this is the time. Our volunteers will be out there to meet them out on the patio here. And for the rest of us, we're in Acts chapter 28 this morning. If you're using one of the blue Bibles in the back, it's on page 546. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Shing. I uh, work here at Church on Mill with the International Student Ministries, Collegiate Ministries here. I'm grateful to be able to share with you this morning as Chuck is away on his sabbatical. So again, we're in Acts 28, 17 to 31. That's on page 546. And there are endings and conclusions that sort of just stick with us, right? If I start chanting, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. I don't know if anybody knows that movie, but we love, I do at least, that ending or endings like that, that end on a triumph, triumphant note because it makes us feel good, makes us feel inspired. And actually, right after the first service this morning, I was talking with James Stover. He's like, I felt like I want to go tackle somebody again. And then there are endings that stick with us because they are emotional. You know, the heartfelt tearjerker, like the one we find at the end of Toy Story 3. You should recall, Andy, the owner of the toys, is, is older now and he donates his toys. And the scene ends with Woody saying, So long, partner. And then there are those endings that stick with us because they are ambiguous. And if you have a personality like me, we call these endings infuriating because there are so many loose ends that are not addressed. I'm thinking about Inception, right? You guys ever watch Inception? The top just keeps spinning. Was that reality or was that all a dream? We don't know, right? There's no clean ending. It's infuriating. But some of you guys like that because it's artistic. But we could debate that later outside. And today we hit a conclusion here. A conclusion in our nine-month journey through the book of Acts. Yeah, I heard that. I'm sure that as we read the end of Acts, we'll have a wide range of feelings just like the wide range of feelings we feel when we watch movies. And some will feel good and inspired, and some might feel some emotion, and others disappointment that not all the I's are dotted and T's crossed. I do hope and pray that despite our initial feelings, this ending will not stick with us because of our initial reactions. But for the positive reasons, the reasons why Luke, the author, ended it the way he did. Even though this is not how you might imagine the ending would be like, I hope that we can come to see that the conclusion that Luke chose is fitting and appropriate. And if you're visiting here with us this morning, here or online, I, I hope you don't decide to tune out. It's kind of awkward to jump in at a conclusion, right? But maybe our time this morning will give you some tracks to run on the next time you read the book of Acts or any other part of the Bible. Before we talk too much more, let's look at the text together. Again, this is Acts 28, 17-31. I'll read it here for us, starting at 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. 
when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our father, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there is no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. And for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to the sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. In disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, they will listen. And he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I know there are questions about these last words and acts, right? Especially after we talked about endings. What happens to Paul? What about Caesar and his trial? Did Paul live? Did he die? Did Luke have a part three of this narrative? And all are valid questions, but we can't jump there just yet. What we want to do this morning is to look at what is happening here in these 14 verses before we piece it all together at the end. As what happens here helps us to understand what Luke was trying to get us as the reader to understand. So we pick up the storyline here from last week in verse 17. Paul, at last, has made it to his goal, the city of Rome. And his goal was first made known to him all the way back in Acts 23. And you can imagine Paul entered the city, the, the eternal city, as Chuck mentioned last week. The prestige of the city would not have been lost on him. He was there and ready to do ministry in the city at the epicenter of the known world. Paul would have noticed all the grandeur that Rome presented. But the rampant idolatry and paganism would not have been lost on him either. He would have seen all the memorials to the imperial family, all the temples for their gods, Mars, Venus, Apollo, Jupiter, to name a few. He would have also seen the condition of those who were slaves, serving the lather on, the decadence, and building up the extravagance for the wealthy. 
And against this backdrop, Paul seeks to get down to business. Business that has an eternal significance. Even though he is chained to a soldier 24-7, he sets out as soon as he can to get in touch with the Jewish leaders. And we see that in doing so, he's following his usual pattern with engaging the Jews first. And upon gathering the Jewish leaders, Paul gives another eloquent defense, both of himself and for the gospel. There isn't anything that Paul presents in verses 17 to 20 that is is unusual to us at this point in Acts. And his speech is generally similar to what you have seen before in Acts. As we can see, he reiterates his innocence before the Jews. Paul states that he is not guilty of of anything deserving the death sentence. And in fact, would have been set free if it were not for his appeal to Caesar. But there is something a little bit different here. There's something a little bit different about Paul's defense this time around. And it's the manner in how he expresses all that has happened to him. He uses a softer tone than any of us would probably use if we were in his situation. And even after all the abuse and after all the difficulties he has gone through, Paul does not come at the Jews with animosity. We can see it in his explanation of the events in verse 17. One commentator says this, To say that he was delivered into the hands of the Romans is a very mild way of describing how he was rescued by Roman soldiers from a mob that was trying to beat him to death. We can see the softer tone as well in verse 19. And Paul says explicitly that he has nothing against his nation. It is an attitude that is consistent with what he writes elsewhere, like in Romans 9 and 10, which says, For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And this is the attitude that Paul approaches his brethren here in Rome. Far softer and kinder than what we might expect. The hardship that Paul has endured and continues to endure while in chains is because, as he says in verse 20, due to the hope of Israel. Paul says he is in trouble for believing in the hope, the promise of God, the Messiah, the resurrection. This same hope is why he endeavors to approach the leaders with gentleness and diplomacy, and that they might be inclined to listen to him, to show an openness, to have an interest in what he has to say. As we move down to verses 21 and 22, we see that the Jewish leaders indeed do have an interest in hearing more about what they call a sect. As we consider the response here by the Jews, there's an interesting kind of a question that we're left with, right? Why do the Jews know nothing of Paul and of the church? It's kind of curious, right? It would seem that the communication regarding Paul and his case had been delayed could have been delayed in the same manner that Paul's appeal had been delayed. And as we all know how bureaucracy works, it takes a while. 
And if you recall the previous events in Acts, traveling during the last part of the autumn season and early winter in the Mediterranean is not the easiest. Any correspondence about Paul would have been likely delayed if the ship carrying the documents or the messenger were to play it safe, unlike the ship that Paul found himself on in Acts 27. Another possibility is that no communication was actually ever sent to Rome. The Jews in Judea could have simply reacted with a good riddance attitude and booted Paul on and went on with their lives. And what about the existing Christian church in Rome? It would seem a little odd that the Jews would only have a vague notion of this early church, especially since we know of its existence in Rome and also know in history the actions taken against Christians by the emperor. And while we don't know exactly what is happening in the minds of these Jewish leaders, it would seem reasonable, though, that if they distanced themselves from knowing anything about this sect, since association with Christians would probably bring focus upon them from the emperor that they did not want. But whatever the case may be, the stage is now set for Paul to proclaim the glorious hope the good news of the Messiah to the Jews. And he takes full advantage of the opportunity. We read here in verse 23 that he goes all day. Just to give you an idea of what I do, what I'm going to do in about 30 minutes, I'm going to go stuff my face and take a nap for two hours. But Paul, all day long, sun up to sundown. And here we see that he takes care to explain the full plan of God and does not take shortcuts. He also doesn't simply go on about generalities, but rather he unpacks Scripture, the law, and the prophets. He emphasizes that Jesus is at the center of God's plan. He is the fulfillment of the promises made and that all Scriptures were written about him. To quote Luke 24. And Paul wants to show that indeed Jesus and the kingdom of God, the plan of God, do indeed fit together. Not only does Paul go from sunup to sundown, we can see that he engaged the Jews to the best of his abilities. Luke actually uses three different verbs in explaining what the, the happenings here in verse 23. We read that he expounded we read that he testified. We read that he tried to convince them. What was taking place was not a day-long academic seminar where everybody is snoozing. We can know that this defense, this presentation, this teaching that Paul is giving is packed with emotion. He's convincing them. He's pleading with them. We know that Paul desired to see his brethren saved. We can reasonably ascertain from these words that Paul is on his knees and giving it all of his effort he had to persuade them to embrace the message of the gospel. But what was the response to all of this? We take a look at verses 24 and 25. We see here in these verses that some of the Jews were convinced by what Paul said. It doesn't say exactly what they were convinced of, but it's likely that some 
came to trust in the fact that Jesus is indeed the Christ. What wonderful news that is. However, not all would respond that way. And we read that, and there are some who believed not, or disbelieved. And the issue that made the biggest kerfuffle here and it resulted in some of the Jews leaving was when Paul quoted from the prophets. Specifically, Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Explaining the situation, explaining the prophecy of their disbelief. In the same manner that God's people rejected the message sent through the prophet Isaiah several hundred years earlier, they are now rejecting the good news of Christ. And interestingly enough, Jesus quotes the same passage as recorded in the Gospels when he came to preach the kingdom of God. Jews didn't listen. Well, they listened, but they actually don't understand. Their ears are too heavy, too tired, too weighed down to function. They look and see, but they never truly perceive. And they've shut their eyes. Their hearts have literally grown fat and hardened against the gospel message. The antidote to all this is simply turning to God and receiving with faith the message that is placed before them, and they would be healed. And all of this was a rebuke, a warning about the condition of the Jews in hopes that it would get them to respond. But tragically, I think this is what Luke wants us to feel, but tragically, that is not the case. There would be no response. As one writer says, a message of salvation that was foretold by Jewish prophets, fulfilled in a Jewish Messiah, preached by Jewish evangelists, was rejected by many Jews. But however, it was embraced by the Gentiles. This is what we see in verse 28. The message that the Jews rejected would go out to the Gentiles. The hope and promises that stem from Abraham were now available to all who would believe. As Paul says this, it would seem that he's trying to stir up one last response. But sadly, as the same commentator writes, the narrative reaches a solemn climax. Rejection on one side, unchecked success, and hope on the other. And friends, if you are listening to this and you have not believed in this wonderful gospel, I would ask you to seriously consider it. The promise of true life, the promise of true joy, the promise of true salvation has been made available to everyone, including you. And I'd urge you to consider your sin. You're living apart from God. But also consider the fact that there is a Savior, a Messiah, Jesus. And He is the one who took the wrath and punishment for your sin. And all the promises of God will be made available to you today if you would indeed come to hear and accept with faith this message. I urge you to not delay and to act now and not let this moment pass you by. 
I and all the other Christians do not desire to see you included in this tragic ending. And for the church, we should be thankful for this great and glorious gospel that has been given to us and received by faith. But yet let's realize there are two paths for everybody. We who are saved have a true hope, a true life, a true salvation, but those who don't have this will see the wrath and punishment for their sin. When we think about sharing the gospel, there is a weight to it. There is eternal significance that we would desire and that we would plead with people to realize the hope that they're missing out on. And now we come to the long-awaited ending. Sort of. I'm sure there are some of you wondering, like, why, why, how can we jump to the end? We're, we're, we're missing, there's something missing here, right? What happened to 29? Verse 29, where is verse 29, right? It's an obvious question, but one with also a straightforward answer, and we'll just touch on this briefly. The verse is missing in actually all of the oldest Greek manuscripts, and all scholars would agree with this assessment and exclude it from translation. And the line of thought is that older means more original, older means less changes, so more likely to be accurate. And since it's missing in the oldest documents, it's not likely to be genuine. Although some translations might include it in there, and some might have it in a footnote. But in the end, the text doesn't affect our understanding of what is happening here in this passage. Verse 29 simply states, the Jews depart and have a dispute among themselves. Now, on to verse 30 and 31. The book of Acts ends with Paul spending two years in Rome under house arrest, teaching and sharing the kingdom of God with all who would come to see him, all Jew and Gentile. We know from the rest of the Bible that time spent here under house arrest awaiting trial was not wasted at all. He wrote the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. And we also know that his servant, Onesimus, became a Christian during Paul's time in Rome. And during this time, Paul did all of this with boldness. As the last word of the book says, without hindrance or unhindered. And this word appears only once in the entire Bible. And we find it here. And here it's used with emphasis and used in triumph as Lou closes out the scene in the narrative of Acts. So again, why does it end this way? Let's take a look back at Acts chapter 1 for just a moment as we try to piece all this together. It should be on the screen behind me. There it is. Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, and you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we're left hanging not because there's a sequel or a true ending that was lost, is ultimately because the story of Acts is not the biography of Paul. If Luke had wrapped up all the loose ends about Paul, then the focus would have shifted away from what Luke was trying to get at, what he's trying to get the reader to understand, which is the kingdom of God expanding, moving forward by the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. These elements that are on display at the beginning of the book of Acts, the kingdom of God and, and Judea, Samaria, and ends of the earth, they're all here at the end of the book as well. We see in the beginning, talking about the kingdom of God. We end the book talking about the kingdom of God. And Paul is the very witness to this true hope. He is a witness to the kingdom. And he is completing that witness in Rome, the end of the earth. The biggest stage that readers back then could have ever imagined. And as the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom of God reaches the ends of the earth, it does not fail. It cannot be stopped. Nothing can bottle it up. And no, what we see here at the end of Acts is that the message is unbound. It is unhindered. It is being proclaimed boldly from center stage. It keeps going on and it triumphs over all. And ironically, even as the main witness, Paul, whom we have followed all throughout Acts, is chained to a soldier 24-7. The gospel message that he preaches on this big stage is not chained at all. And all throughout the book of Acts, we saw what we would call summary statements. For instance, in Acts 9.31, when the word had reached Judea and Samaria, we read, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And we see this on several other occasions as well throughout Acts. But here at the end of this account, maybe we would expect to see something similar, right? A summary statement. But Luke, the author, has kept it open-ended. The message of the kingdom of God and of our Savior Jesus keeps going and it is still even going today. The mission continues. The next chapter is still being written. 
The gospel keeps moving on without hindrance. And that is the focus. The focus is the powerful gospel. As one commentator says, victory of the word of God. Paul at Rome, the apex of the gospel, the end of Acts. It began in Jerusalem, it finishes in Rome. And he also gives a helpful application here too. And he says, Hear, O church, thou hast thy pattern. It is for thee to preserve it, to guard the deposit. And it's important for us to think about this, right? Especially as we think about how are we to live out the implications of this passage. One idea I want us to think about is our role as witnesses to the kingdom. As we think about that, I want us to remind us about our commitment to one another, our commitment together as a church. This is found in our membership statement of fellowship. And I read, quote, We will aim to bring up all who are in our care through example, word, and deed. Seek the salvation of our friends, family, community, and all the nations. I've seen Paul in these verses giving his best shot to win over his Jewish brethren. He approaches them with gentleness. He reasons with them. He explains the scriptures to them. He labors for hours and he pleads with them. And who is that person or persons in our care that we can seek to do these exact things with? Who can you pray for? Who can you invite? Who can you serve? Who can you read with? Who can you share the gospel with? And it is by taking these steps one at a time is how that mission continues on today. When we see Paul's connection to the Jews, they were his people. And I was thinking through this and I came to realize that I have a special connection as well. You know, my fellow countrymen. I'm a Hong Konger, as they would say. And I even grew up in an ethnic church filled with fellow countrymen. But yet, I had resolved to get out of that circumstance as fast as I could. This passage has led me to reflect on whether or not I loved and cared enough for my people that God has sovereignly placed me in. And Paul's desire to see his people coming to God is unending In the words of Romans, he is willing to be cut off for their sake. So it's helpful to ask, who is it that you might have a special connection to? Maybe it's a fellow countryman. Maybe it's not a fellow countryman, but maybe it's somebody in the circles that you have a special connection with. Which person or persons need to hear the gospel from you when no one else would bring it to them? In church, be reminded of our role as ambassadors for Christ, especially in this Christmas season when people are actually just open. Be reminded of what Paul writes to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
And in the words of a well-known church planter, we must deliver the message regardless of the discomfort produced, the effort required, and the shame endured. Ambassadors exist to deliver messages. So we shout out, be reconciled to God. We may not feel like representatives of the kingdom of God, but that is what we are. It is how we are seen in the spiritual realms, and it's an outstanding truth. And as we work to continue on in his mission until Jesus returns, let us also have a great confidence because God will indeed accomplish what he intends. And this is the story of Acts. We see that there's nothing that can stop the gospel. It is unhindered. This is why Paul can preach with boldness. And this is why he can even keep trucking in the hardest circumstances. And I think back to an advice of an older pastor when I picked up my first pastorate a few years ago. He simply told me, our God is not a novice. Things are not spinning out of control. He knows what he is doing, and he will do what he intends. And do you remember back what Jesus tells Peter back in the Gospel of Matthew? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. This is the confidence we can have as we seek to obey and abide. And this truth will help us, especially in the hard times when we don't see much fruit or even when we see rejection. We can have confidence as we continue to see the gospel move out. And it's funny, as I sat and wrote about an ending of a book, I was like, well, how do we end our time together without being awkward like Luke is awkward? And I came across a quote and thought this was an appropriate way for us to end and to think about all of this. This commentator says this, Luke's message is this, be reassured. The unhindered progress of God's word about salvation to all people is occurring by God's direction, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ according to the long revealed promise of scripture to Israel, despite opposition. The word will get out. God will make sure it happens, and so will a faithful church. Let's pray. Father, we think about the words that we just sang moments ago, that your buried body began to breathe, and God, that was victorious, that was glorious, for we have a living hope and that you have proved that indeed the promise of the gospel is real, it is indeed valid, that there is real life that you can give to us for you conquered the grave. But Father, we think about all those who are unsaved, all those that have not placed their trust in this glorious message of the gospel. And Father, we just simply ask that you would help us to obey and to abide as we seek to share with those who don't know you. 
as we seek to share with those who are destined to receive punishment and wrath for their sin. And Father, let that fact not be lost upon us. But God, we ask you to help us to be faithful to this task. We need you. And we ask that you would help us indeed, Father, to be faithful. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.